Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Hi, welcome back to our Ask Dr. Sammy Town Hall event, part two. We're going to continue to answer some of our most commonly asked questions from the audience. And don't forget, this is the last episode of our spring series. We're going to be enjoying the sunshine for the rest of the summer, but we will be back in the fall with weekly episodes and lots more amazing interviews. How do I be an advocate for myself without being labeled difficult? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a very common um, concern that people have, especially when they feel like they're um, causing a ripple in the conveyor belt. Um, so, um, you know, if you just go with the flow and go with the standard or usual care, um, usually people don't feel like they're being difficult. But when we try to get off that conveyor belt and we try to uh, personalize our care, um, you know, that can feel like you're being met with um, hesitation <clears throat> and worry that you're going to be labeled difficult. So I would say, again, I, I sound like a broken record, but with your advocacy, <clears throat> excuse me, um, start early in your illness journey. So um, begin to um, share with the healthcare team who you are, your personal style, your wishes, your goals, what's important to you, what's not important to you, help them understand you as a person early, early, early on in your relationship and bring it up again and again over time so that it's not going to come out of left field when you ask for A, B, or C um, because they got a sense of you. Um, you know, the other thing I think is important is instead of just advocating for something and saying, you know, we need more nursing visits at home or we need more personal support worker hours, it's important to give the person the context of your advocacy. So why you're asking for it. So it might be helpful to say, the reason why I'm asking for this today is because of X, Y, and Z. So is it possible that we could get some more nursing visits? So when, they, when you give them the context or the, under, um, the underlying reason, it can make the healthcare provider understand you better and you won't feel as difficult. You'll find common ground. Yeah, I have been thinking about this question for a little bit because I saw it in our inbox. I think one of the things I would say is when you don't have a diagnosis and you, you know, they are still trying to figure out that is very anxiety inducing. And that is when you're screaming at something is wrong and they're like, oh, nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. But like something is wrong. I think that's very different when you don't have a diagnosis. Um, and when you do, when you have the diagnosis, you are now in a different position because and if you're the family or the patient, you have information about your diagnosis, your symptoms, and you almost have more information than they do because you're living with the disease or caring for them all the time. I think what I have, my experience has been many healthcare providers want to, they do it, they want to, they want to be caring. And so I try to think, I guess what has worked for me has been, I kind of think of it when I'm calling, you know, customer support. I don't start yelling like, I can't believe this happened. I kind of say, this is what happened. I, I know it wasn't your fault, but can you help me? I try to bring them onto our side of like, this is, um, 
you know, I have this information. I think it's really important. I'd want to, how can, how can we work together to do this? If you approach them as somebody on your team, which, you know, probably is what's happening. And that is going to be uh, more likely as human beings, and even though they're health providers, that they're going to want to help you than if you're yelling at them at the top of your lungs. Now, I understand when things are really wrong and there's a time to yell, of course, like customers after three hours are like, really, we need to go to the next level. But even the more you stay calm, the, the more likely they're not going to write you off as someone who is difficult. And I think, um, yeah, I think what we've heard from you, you just keep reinforcing your point <laughs> and moving up the chain, uh, up the ladder as best you can, because our experience has been most healthcare providers uh, want, understand, you know, the anxiety, and maybe it's about the emotion too, but labeling that, but um, they don't, you know, they, the difficult part is they want to be on your team. They want to try and solve the problem. Um, and this maybe some of the times is if this is not something you can do, where do I go? Like, what can I do if if I'm talking to the wrong person? Like, what are my options? You know, that's a possibility too. Yeah. Anything to add? Yeah, this is a hard one because there's so many variations. Yeah, I'm just I'm, again, I'm just thinking of when people tend to advocate for things. I mean, they can advocate for anything, but again, it tends to be when they're they seem to be going against the grain of what the normal flow would be. Um, and so, but that doesn't mean don't do it. Uh, again, yeah. um, we have one episode that's about um, uh, customize your order. And it's all about uh, knowing yourself and what's important to you and making sure that you do advocate for yourself. Um, because if not, you're just going to get usual care, which may not match uh, who you are and what you need. And we don't want people to have regrets. But but that does make it slightly more difficult for the healthcare system to be nimble and flexible and be able to meet, you know, everyone's um, yeah. order. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but you should still try um, as yeah. best you can. I, I also think it's, I had this analogy in my head. It's like, it's almost like you're the puzzle maker. You're a detective. So when you go, every person has, the person in front of you may not have all the answers, even though they're saying the answer is no, I need more hours. They'll go no. And you say, I need more hours. They go no. So then I'm like, change your strategy, be a detective, be like, okay, what would allow me to get more hours? You know, in what situations, if I'm not in the situation now, like in what cases has there ever been a situation where this could happen? And if it's not from you, what are my other options? So you can ask if, you know, if it's not a, if it's a power struggle of, yes, I need this. Cause maybe what you're asking for mm -hmm. is not allowed, but something else that might solve your problem is allowed. Mm -hmm. And you really need to understand the rules around that. Or maybe it's not them, but somebody else, right? Like, um, you know, so I think that's another piece of it. That, I mean, when you sort of get angry and keep asking the same thing and you feel like it's a no, then, you know, you sort of feel like maybe you would get labeled. You feel like you're being labeled difficult. But I think it is, it's like you're um, maybe asked slightly different questions of I, how would you help me in a situation? Like, what advice would you give me if I'm in a situation and I feel like I need help? Is there anything else you might offer that might be helpful? Like that's another way to ask them, bring them on your side to help you problem solve with you. That might be another strategy to try. Okay, we've talked about this one a lot. Let's move on because this one is you know all kind of connected about healthcare providers. When you're you referred, have a, you have a lot of good advice. Dr. Well, it's Dr. Seal <laughs> show. <laughs> I'm sorry, taking. No, don't yeah. be. I love it. I <laughs> well, I've just had a lot of experience of people calling and I'm like, because yeah. I've seen it as a non-clinician, like when they ask the question, I'm like, that's the wrong question. I know what they're going to say. And I know why they're saying it. it's like decoding, right? Like one of our, our, our insights is we're decoding 
the minds of the clinicians and the, and the mm. patients and like, how do we get them to talk to each other better? Yeah. yeah. So when we're, so this sometimes happens when you refer from one doctor to another, maybe specialist to specialist, maybe because your situation is very complex. Should patients assume they need to start from scratch each time? And how much time do they spend sort of explaining it from the beginning and all their symptoms versus, you know, how much do you think that, you know, the doctor has read your file and knows what's happening? Yes. And I mean, I can say that patients and families really don't like telling their story over and over and over again. Um, and they can get frustrated and uh, lose faith in the healthcare system. Like, don't you guys talk to each other? Does the right hand not talk to the left hand? Um, and I can appreciate uh, where that comes from. I mean, from our training, we are trained to get the information um, directly from the patient uh, and the family and not rely solely on um, the notes of some other clinician. So that's important for people to know that I wouldn't want to just write down everything that Dr. A said last week because maybe they made a mistake. And so I, I need to make sure that I'm accurate in, in my um, consultation. So, so there's, there's that. Um, but also, um, you know, the truth is, is that the healthcare system is not as well connected as people would like it to be. And um, although we have made strides uh, having access to information about what happened to the patient last week or what happened when they went into the hospital or what happened last year when they were diagnosed, it's not a perfect um, system. And so we don't have access to all the information. And so to be honest, patients and families become a very important um, connector. They help the doctors and the teams connect the dots. Uh, it's like we've said before, the person becomes like a carrier pigeon that they themselves uh, need to know that they may be called upon to relay information uh, between visits and between teams and between doctors. And so one of the suggestions we've made in the episode Tag Your It is that it, it's really a wonderful idea for patients or families, find that manager in your inner crew um, to create your own patient record. Um, because let's face it, a lot of your history is in the hours between seeing doctors or between teams. Um, there's a whole lot that goes on with patients outside of um, what the doctors and nurses see. So having your patient chart uh, that is organized in a way that it highlights, you know, the ups, the downs, the major moments, um, you know, the medications and the doses, like your own chart, then you can bring that with you wherever you go, like a carrier pigeon and leave copies uh, with um, the next team. Often you may arrive to the next team or the next appointment before the person has had a chance to dictate from the last <laughs> visit. And so if you want them to have the most current information, then just accept that you're gonna have to be a carrier pigeon. Um, and, you know, I also see this as a, an opportunity for patients and families, because 
if you are the one who is telling your story uh, over and over and over again, as much as that's exhausting and it makes you frustrated, it is also an opportunity to share what's most important to you at that time. And you can shape your story every time you tell it to reflect where you're at um, at that moment. And so look at it as an opportunity and um, less so as a drag. So know that there is information being shared in the background. It's not perfect. There's gaps yeah. and you need to be yeah. a carrier pigeon. Yeah, and totally agree with everything you said. So sometimes they're being asked the same question, like what is your pain? Because they're different organizations and legally they have to ask that. So, you know, it's frustrating, but that's the case. Um, I heard this, I think it was maybe you, we talked about it as, on an episode, but somebody said, look, if they have, especially for people with a very complex case now, um, you can type out your summary. What are the key things? My diagnosis is that this is what happened. Your sort of history in a page or a two-sided one page and give, and, and this person brings it to them every visit. And they say, before you ask me, read this, because this is going to tell you everything you need to know. And, um, you know, it's kind of like the medical alert braces, really, like this is the most important thing, yeah. <laughs> but you can do it in a short way of what you think is most important that they would need to know. So you don't have to, to, to go. And again, you need to know why you're talking to this doctor. If it's a cardiologist, they're interested in your heart and their questions are all about the heart. They're not going to know about the liver and all these other things. So really hone your piece about that. And I think I never assume anything. I mean, when we're assuming that they know what's going on, like that is just I, I mean, you know, if you have your, your family doctor, maybe or something, you have years of experience. But even, even my wife, I wish I could assume what she's thinking, but I, you know, I do not assume. I better check and ask and make sure. Have you? Did you get the results from that? Because we did this, and I think the reason we're meeting is because of this. Is that your understanding? Okay, so your book, you want to be on the same page, and I, there's never a bad thing to ask good questions of like, what is the purpose of the visit, and what, um, what information is helpful? Like, how much do you want to know? That's a fair question. Um, why are you asking me this? Like, um, because you could drone on and on and on, and it has nothing to do with why they asked you the question. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. um, the healthcare providers, we're almost done with the section. Okay, my partner is a day-to-day -day person and doesn't ask questions about the future. And, but I am thinking about the future all the time. I'm guessing that often that's that person who's thinking about the future is the caregiver. What can I do so we both get what we want? Yeah, you know what, it might not be the caregiver. I've had both scenarios where the patient is day to day and the caregiver wants to look, you know, in the future and I've had the flip side of that. So, um, but I, you know, I, I, at the risk of sounding like a broken record again, um, you know, different people have different styles and different needs and degree for information. And that is okay. It is okay for someone to want to be in the day-to-day. -day. And it's just as okay for another person to want to look into the future. Um, in fact, you might say, oh, you make a good pair that way. Um, if both people are just day-to-day -day people and tend to sort of like put the blinders on, uh, that can be more complicated because we always want someone in the inner crew to to feel the need to look forward a bit and look ahead a bit at the longer view. Um, but everyone's needs count. And if someone's feeling they need more information than their partner, I really recommend that you don't let that fester. Um, so, you know, you may want to ask your loved one, you know, is it okay 
that I might have more questions than you do today? Um, or is it okay that I ask your doctor or your nurse um, some extra questions at the end of our visit today? And in fact, you know, if, if you don't wanna be there, that's okay too. I say to my loved one, you know, I can just ask them on my own and you can go out into the waiting room <laughs> and, uh, and listen to the podcast. No, just kidding. Or <laughs> read the magazines or the pamphlets, but it's okay to ask to meet with the doctor or the nurse on your, on your own. Uh, in fact, I really feel that doctors and nurses should offer this, um, as standard of care. Um, you know, because, because there's always someone who's thinking something uh, and doesn't feel invited to ask. So um, all questions matter. Um, everyone counts. And, you know, you can also um, just ask for a phone call later uh, from a care provider too. So while you're in the visit, you let the main star be the show, the patient. Uh, and then later you can say, is it possible I could give you a call? most doctors and nurses are very accommodating, but you know, they assume no news is good news. If the person's not asking, then they probably don't have questions. And this other one seems to want to just be in the moment. It's really quite much easier to just be in the moment anyway. So the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So do ask. Yeah. And I think a similar uh, parallel to this is if, you know, somebody paints a very rosy picture of what's happening and they're cheerleading and trying to be optimistic and hopeful, but the reality of what you're really seeing is, you know, is, is a little bit different. And I think it is, okay. we've seen, and I see this with qualitative interviews, we interview patients and their caregiver together. And when we offer them the opportunity to have separate uh, interviews, they, all the caregivers raise their hand and say, yes, I have a lot to say that I don't want to say in front of the patient. So, so um, I think that signals to me that maybe the family members might want to have their own visit, maybe with the family doctor or with the oncologist to just try to have their needs met, or at least there's attention there. It might be a different doctor, but there are questions and concerns that they need answered that they may not uh, want to do in front of the patient for various reasons. And that's okay. In fact, that's very important, like you said, because if you let that fester, that's only going to lead to you know uh, being unprepared ahead. <clears throat> See, and that's one of the limitations of virtual visits for me, because as most people know, I work in people's homes, um, is that I can't see the body language. And yeah. often you can pick up on um, the various needs of people in the room by what they're doing. Um, sometimes I think I'm on candid camera, actually, when I'm in someone's home, because the patient will be saying, oh, you know, I'm a day-to-day -day person. And, and, you know, the loved one is like, they make all these gestures like, you know, <laughs> meet me over there, or <laughs> I might drive up to a house. And before I even get out of my car, someone comes out of the house and rushes to me and says, can I speak to you before you go in? Or, um, you know, I'm leaving the house, the visit's over. And, you know, someone says, oh, I'm just going for a carton of milk. And out they come running and, you know, Dr. Winemaker, wait, I have to tell you something. Or they're hiding mm -hmm. behind a tree when I arrive. Psst come over here. Yeah. <laughs> All of these ways of family signaling that they have other questions. Um, you don't get as much virtually. Uh, so I really do miss in, in person visits so much. Yeah, I think you just put something out on healthy debate about exactly that. But I think I think the take home is that um, you if you have questions, they're important to get answered and finding the right time and the right way to ask for it is, is, is key. Okay, let's um, 
questions about resources. We're moving on to our next session, and this is probably a very common one. Um, where do I go to find out uh, more about what resources are available to me? And often they feel like they're hidden. Um, you find out about them later after it's happened. Like, how do you try to be proactive to find out about what's available? Yeah, well, I think it's always important to know about resources before you need them. <laughs> and that's the best advice I think uh, um, I can give. Um, you know, this is a really broad question. It's hard to give yeah. concrete answers to, to resources, except that um, they're important. Um, you want them before you need them. Um, and there's different types of resources people ask for, right? There's information resources and there's practical resources like finances or services or support. Um, you know, if, if it was me, I would probably start with um, an illness specific society. So for example, like Alzheimer's society for people who have Alzheimer's or the heart and stroke foundation, or, you know, these disease specific groups often have a ton of information uh, for patients and families on that specific illness. Or there's other online resources like in our province, Hospice Palliative Care Ontario, or um, the Canadian Virtual Hospice. There's many online resources. Uh, for home, you know, most places have some kind of organized home care service as well. And people who work in the community and home care often know the resources that are available. So connect with, with home care. But, you know, I think the greatest channel for local resources is um, peer groups, to be honest with you. It like reminds me when, you know, I was uh, part of a mom's group or, you know, a, a pregnant women's group or um, women in medical school group, whatever group it is, it's word of mouth um, and testimonies from your uh, peers. That's probably the greatest way to find resources. Um, so that's just a general answer. Yeah, I think there is not ever going to be a silver bullet of like, here's the website with every number to call and we'll have everything because that's what we're hoping for, right? It should be easy. It should be 211, 311. And I think those are places to try, but because of every, it's, it's all context specific of where you live and what's available and who you are and what you need. So it's really like you have to be a detective. I think uh, Tag Your It episode, Karen, our guest Karen Cummings says the best, you have to be a project manager for mm -hmm. your, in her case, her mom, and you're, everybody's waiting for someone to show up and it's you. And we didn't know that. And, and so in some ways you have to ask the questions of like, hey, and maybe some of the good questions are with the health providers is, in this situation, what are some of the best resources that you said? And what do I need to know about now before that people wish they had known earlier? Like, that's a great question, you know? So it's sort of like thinking, um, if you know what you're looking ahead, um, what advice would you have for us at this stage of the disease so that we're more prepared for what's ahead? That's another way to ask the question so that um, it allows them, the, it invites the, you know, the, person, the healthcare provider to be on your side and to say, okay, like if I, you know, if it was you, like, this is what I know that I could tell you to, um, that might help you like, oh, you should really look into this or when this happens, you know, get a guardrail for your bath because that's the biggest thing that happens, that kind of stuff. So <laughs> I don't think there's ever going to be a place, a website that has everything. I think you're right. The disease societies, Ontario has the Ontario Caregiver Organization, um, but not all provinces do, but talking to, to peers and asking good questions because you're a detective, the project manager of, of what they know. Try to get as much information from the people who have um, experienced before you. I think this one, I'm so confused who I'm supposed to call if I need help or I have questions. 
I, know, I think this is a slightly different question. Do you have yeah. any advice for people who don't know who to call when they're, they're stuck? Yeah. Of course, I've got advice about everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so this is very confusing for people, especially when um, there's lots of cooks um, stirring the pot, so to speak. We tend to speak in euphemisms, CNI, or metaphors. But anyway, um, when you've got lots of cooks or lots of healthcare providers or lots of teams, it can be confusing. Who do I call when? Um, so again, start early and keep a running list of the cast of characters um, in your care team. And not only who they are, but what are their roles in their in your care. And so it's a really good idea to sit down with each team and just clarify that. Okay, so you're my oncologist. So I'm gonna call you when and what numbers. Okay, you're my family practice. For what issues might I call you? So, so actively try to get these answers and develop a list that you put on your fridge or my kids would say you would just put it in your phone, um, your, your iPhone. But anyway, that will help you organize who's on first and who's on second. And again, do this in advance. Um, and try to get a sense before you ever need to call anyone. You know, if it's a simple question, who do I call? If it's a crisis question, who do I call? What if it's Monday to Friday? Which one of these characters am I going to call? What if it's on a holiday? What if it's after hours? All of this information is best known in advance and you have easy access to it um, when you do need to call. Yeah, I've seen, um, you know, some hospitals for their patients, like stem cell transplant patients, they give them a list because, you know, if something goes wrong there, it's very serious. So they, they have all the phone numbers and the times to call. So like, that's what you kind of want to develop that for yourself. And if you haven't had that conversation with your family doctor of like, you know, because we, you know, so they're very busy, their line is always busy, they can't leave a message. So having that conversation of if something, you know, are, and it's like, you're, you're sort of having complex issues. Is there another way to reach you if uh, besides just the main line, sometimes they have their separate line, or they have email, they have other things, they have special cases for home visits. So will you make home visits if something goes wrong, and I'm no longer able to come to clinic? That's something I've learned from you, Sammy. So those conversations are helpful to happen before so that you, you know, you know, who is there a net, a safety net for you? And what is it? And how do I access it? Um, excellent. Okay, we, we have our last section here about questions about symptoms or your, your decline over time. Um, my doctor says that I have to keep, I have to eat to keep up my energy, uh, but I have no appetite. Okay, so what mm -hmm. do I do? Yeah. So this is a huge topic um, when people are facing serious illness, um, especially illnesses that are going to change over time um, and that you're expected to move from early, middle, late stage of an illness. The role of nutrition um, changes uh, as much as the illness does. So in the beginning of an illness, um, you know, appetite is important and getting, you know, big bang for your buck with nutrition is really important because we want to keep people as strong um, and have good stamina for as long as possible. So we need to put gas in the car, so to speak. And it's also really important for people to keep um, their energy and appetite up in the 
in the beginning and middle sections of an illness uh, because they may be uh, receiving treatments that they need to stay hardy to, like um, chemotherapies and things like that. Um, so at, at, in those chapters, nutrition is very important. But there does come a time, which is in the episode that we just dropped yesterday, where um, the illness begins to enter into a more later chapter. Um, a person may be entering into the last year of their life. And despite any of the treatments that they've had or ongoing treatments, their body begins to wind down. And again, the details of, of this topic are in um, the episode we dropped yesterday called When Time is Running Out. But our bodies are amazing um, machines. They know how to wind down at the end of life. And every single one of us, um, this might be a news bulletin, is going to go through that at some stage. Whether you have heart failure or COPD or chronic kidney disease or dementia or um, frailty or certain cancers or, you know, I could go on forever. At some point, the common denominator is that our body begins to slow down and wind down. And it's programmed to do that when we've entered into the last phase of our life. Part of our body preparing for that is our appetite naturally goes down, down, down as our body is trying to slow down. But the opposite isn't true. Our body won't speed up if we start feeding ourselves at that point. Um, so it's really important for people to understand that at some point nutrition has nothing to do with the timeline of the decline and no amount of eating or forcing yourself to eat when you have no appetite uh, will turn the clock back. So again, this is a complicated issue because at the beginning we're rah, 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 you need to eat as much as you can, good foods. But nearing the end, when it's clear that people are in the final chapter, uh, nutrition is no longer a measurement of wellness. Um, families feel it's very much a measurement of wellness and they can feel very upset and patients when they see themselves having no appetite and not eating because they know we have to put gas in the car for mm -hmm. the car to move. But um, our bodies are, are programmed to slow down and the most comfortable way in the end is that our body tells us that it, we're not hungry and then we just don't eat as much, but it's a really, really heartfelt topic. Um, now, I will just say one caveat. Uh, sometimes there are hurdles that are thrown into the illness journey earlier on. <laughs> I don't want people to be alarmed that, oh boy, I have no appetite. This must mean I'm in the end. No. So sometimes it's about ill-fitting dentures or a certain treatment or a medication can cause people to have poor appetite. Those are temporary things that you can get over. Um, and nutrition is still important. But again, there are more signs when you're entering into the phase where nutrition isn't as important and becomes more about your quality of life um, versus forcing you to to put gas in the car. 
Yeah, and I think where we see a lot of tensions are is when families are they're not on the same page about zooming out and understanding the, you know the big picture of the illness and where they are and thinking that if they stop eating, a they you know we're not we're abandoning them or we're uh, starving them and they're going to get worse. When you're saying it's a, a natural part of of the uh, of the disease, and so having that open conversation is so important. Thank you so much for listening to our town hall event and our entire spring series. If you have a question or topic you would like us to talk about, you can reach out to us on social media or on our website. We'll be back in the fall with new, amazing episodes. Take care. See you then. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. Please go to our website to join in the conversation, waitingroomrevolution.com.